<sighs> well, here we are, post-election day, and many of us, certainly not me, are all obsessively refreshing Twitter right now for <laughs> updates on polling numbers for the remaining states. Um, even though we know or should remember that the defeat of Trump in an elected position doesn't mean Trumpism, aka white supremacy, just magically dissipates when Biden takes office. Uh, democracy is not saved. Biden is a rapist. Kamala is a cop. Yet organizers on the ground are smart. And we know that we have to create the conditions that we want to organize within. And so that's why we participate in this shit show. Um, so there's that. How are you hanging in there, Paige? <laughs> uh, well said. Yeah, I mean, elections are always an interesting time for me to pay attention to my own reactions and thought processes. Uh, I mean, I, so, you know, everyone's really anxious. I'm trying to not be online too much. But the one thing that I noticed in myself was I, I'm surprised at how surprised I am that Trump almost won. Um, I, when he first won, was in the like, obviously he's going to win camp. And then this round was like, clearly he's going to lose. I, I, I thought out of, uh, you know, I, I participate in electoral campaigns in the sense that I organize campaigns that create urgency to get someone out of office. And I believe fiercely in our ability to vote people out. Um, and, and yeah, uh, and I, so I'm just struggling with, with how, close it was that I, I'm and I'm frustrated with myself for being so surprised because I know where we live and I think this episode is actually going to speak to that really well that it's just the veil is off a little bit but I've always known what's underneath mm. mm-hmm. uh, but yeah Tracy Chapman made a beautiful appearance and my younger self was screaming my older self was screaming that was amazing and thank you Tracy Chapman if you're listening I love you Oh my god! If Tracy Chapman <laughs> listened to the lit review, I would I would die. Um, her her performance brought tears to my eyes. I, I every time she sings that line, "Poor people gonna rise up and take what's theirs." I just like I'm like yes, like I feel that in my soul. Um, I'm just trying to conserve my energy as best as possible because I feel like I'm being pulled in all these different places and mentally. And so I'm like, okay, focus on what you can control, you know. But like. The, the, the retaliation and the backlash and all of that post Biden win, I'm, I'm, I'm scared. And I'm just looking toward my mentors and close community for guidance in this moment because uh, everything just feels really hard. Um, but all I know is that we just got to keep each other safe, keep keeping each other safe, uh, especially in the streets through continuing mutual aid, um, continuing to safety plan and building out all these um, networks of care, right? Yeah. And it looks like, you know, we're recording this on Friday night and it looks like Biden has pretty much officially won and is maybe going to give his speech soon. And now I am in the like, oh, I can't believe Joe Biden is our president. I hate it. <laughs> uh, so but I'm excited to protest him, you know, um, and to make new things possible. I think uh, there's. I'm in a place of thinking a lot about what, how our work needs to think about rural and city tensions, um, and, and I think yeah, and I'm and I'm really concerned about what I 
I think we're all bracing ourselves for like an, another increase of, of white supremacist violence and retaliation. And, and that's, you know, where my anxiety has been about leading up to and after inauguration for so long. And here we are. Um, and in Chicago, it was also, you know, really uh, sad, you know, when majority for Biden, but we lost the fair tax and also Judge Tuman a horrible racist judge who, you know, locks up children, um, is, was able to keep his seat. Um, and that, that's really heartbreaking. So I'm, it's a moment of loss. It's a moment of anxiety and yeah, but we do have to just keep fighting to keep each other safe, um, and building those relationships because they matter. Yeah, no, absolutely. This past week, uh, a video kind of went viral on, in Chicago of, um, uh, a woman who confronted Lori Lightfoot about supporting Tumen and you know Lori Lightfoot got in this person's face like no 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 social distancing and basically said Tumen is a great judge Tumen is great like the demo like uh, okay and then called so, CTU liars and CTU yeah. hadn't even done anything about this where it's just this weird flattening of the left as like it was just what yeah Fuck Larry Life. Also, she was not about to fight anybody. And I love that she was trying to act like she was. Like, excuse me, ma'am. No. <laughs> no oh one believes God. anything you're saying or what you're doing. I know. I know. I know. I'm I'm relieved that Kim Fox kept her seat uh, as state's attorney. Um, and I, you know, shout out also specifically, I saw some on Twitter, some statistics from the 35th Ward in Chicago and the, whose residents went really hard and overwhelmingly voted to keep Kim in office compared to like the city and, and county numbers. Right. And and majority, you know, on, yes, on fair tax, majority said no to two minutes. So just I'm really thankful for social, the socialist alderman in Chicago and, um, you know, and just speaking to the power of local place-based organizing, right? Which brings us to the book we're talking about um, today, which is Rules for Radicals by the late Chicago organizer, Solinsky. Um, Ira did a great job at breaking down the tactics and strategies of Alinsky-style organizing that many of us are mildly familiar with and, and, and that works as standalone tactics, but we also know that there's like some complicated and problematic things that Alinsky's presenting here. Um, the one thing that Myra said that stuck out to me during our conversation is that there's this legacy here of what we're trying to untangle ourselves from and that to do it effectively, we have to know that history. So yeah, what I, that's what I'm feeling about this conversation. It was awesome. What did you think about it? Yeah. I mean, I loved it. Um, Myra is wonderful and maybe it's a Chicago thing, but like if you are organized here in Chicago, you've definitely heard about Alinsky, but you might not have read his book or been trained. Uh, but his, he has a very strong influence here and a lot of, of, pushback and critique. What I loved about this episode is what I love about this podcast generally, which is that it's a chance to just talk to folks that are organizing, that are uh, applying things that they're learning from books and seeing how they actually work in the world that we live in and, and in combination with all of our ideas. So yeah, it's a great episode. Listen up. Um, great overview and uh, really, really helpful for thinking about organizing campaigns and organizations, I think especially, which is what we're going to need more of over these coming weeks and months and years. You're listening to the Lit Review Podcast. We're your hosts, Paige May and Monica Trinidad. I think it's essential 
for people to learn together in order to be able to understand what we're up against. We must disrupt, we must disobey, we must agitate, we must escalate, we must break, we must create, we must abolish, we must transform. I remember it. She was shocked by my health. In sharing our ideas, we're stronger. Welcome to Chicago, this is home for most. This is the home of the wealthy making cameos. This is the house of the heartless, the home of the cold. Man, my dog is more acknowledgement than homeless folks. This is the house of generations caged in all the homes. We're so excited to be here with you today, Myra, to talk about the book Rules for Radicals by Saul Alinsky. Um, before we dive into what led you to read this book, can we just hear a little bit about who you are, what do you do in Chicago, and why do you do it? I am so happy to be here. Thank you, Paige and Monica. I work primarily at the Invisible Institute. And at the Invisible Institute, I investigate police misconduct. I am an educator and I work with high school students, um, specifically at Hyde Park Academy on 63rd and Stoney, um, re like debriefing um, mundane routine police encounters and having conversations about like constitutional and human rights violations in those small moments. So that's my primary job. Outside of the Invisible Institute, I um, do a lot of political education work um, with my like partner in work, Trina Reynolds Tyler, who I think is also in this season. Um, it's called TM Productions, and we basically make like goofy videos or just resources, take people to vote, have conversations about why people don't vote, things like that. Um, and that is is really a good time all around. So mutual aid work this year has been really um, a political focus for me. Um, what else? I think that's I think that covers it. Broadly speaking, I'm just a person in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Yes. Um, I'm so thrilled. And we were talking earlier before we started recording about all of us when we were describing how we are in terms of weather, have a lot of wind going on right now. And so I'm trying to like stay focused and everything because I'm just really pumped to talk about this book that um, I've, I've heard mentioned maybe more than any other book in organizing spaces and have have formed opinions about it, even though I have not read it. And so I'm just excited to actually hear a little bit more in, in, in intentional ways about uh, the ideas in this book, because clearly they have had an impact. They are talked, this book is talked about a lot, and the person who wrote it is talked about a lot. Anyway, so I'm curious, though, what led you to, to read it? So what led me to pick up this infamous book, <laughs> Rules for Radicals, <laughs> that I will disclaimer say I have a lot of critiques of, but I think... Since this podcast is based in Chicago, I think it's a really important book to just be included in the discussion. Um, because I was at um, Powell's in Hyde Park, um, maybe in like 2014 or something like that. And I saw the book in the Chicago section. I always go to the Chicago history section. Um, that's what I studied when I was a student at the U of C. I focused on the South Side and I had recognized Saul Alinsky's name because at the time I was doing research on the relationship between um, the Blackstone Rangers, later known as the Black Peastones, and a church on 64th and Kimbark and their relationship to both the Woodlawn Organization and the University of Chicago. 
So I was like trying to understand these like very local power dynamics in the Woodlawn area. And so I knew, I learned about the Woodlawn organization and Saul Alinsky. And so when I saw his book on the shelf, I was like, oh, I gotta read this. Like I keep seeing this man's name. Um, did not know anything about his reputation at the time. And it was really important for me because um, a lot of a lot of how I understood organizing at that time, I was not an organizer, um, was very much around like, um, you know, demonstrations like marches and boycotts and um, just kind of these classic examples of what it meant to plan an action. And I had not seen a really straightforward articulation of what it meant to, to seize power from an institution um, and redistribute it to people in a community um, and how organizing tactics, specifically the tactics were really interesting to me. Just these examples, he just basically writes out a lot of examples of his time, um, you know, after going to the University of Chicago, he was born in Chicago in 1909. He organized, um, the meat packer, like in the meat packing industry where Upton Sinclair wrote the jungle. So he like details some of those tactics. He details some of the tactics used in Woodlawn against the university. He details some things against C PS, Board of Education. And so just to see these examples that I could recognize in Chicago and be like, oh, he knew how to like hit them where it hurts. And he was advocating for um, people to still work within a system. And I was really interested in that idea of like, can you be an outside agitator and be a radical while still um, encouraging people to participate in a democratic system? Because something felt really off for me as a very, as like a student at the U of C to be like, no, don't vote or something like that. Because it's like, who am I to tell people, um, forget this whole system and build something new? It's something felt really off about me from my, my positionality. Um, so it was, it was like a place where I could start to think about what it could mean for me to organize. Mm, mm, okay, okay. So, okay, so Alinsky was a Chicagoan, uh, for those that are listening and don't know that. Um, and he was organizing between the 30s and the 70s uh, in Chicago. And our understanding is that this book is Alinsky talking less about how to seize power, right, and more about how to run a successful movement for social change. Uh, and his goal was sort of to create a guide for future organizing in, in poor, you know, low-income communities. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about what some of the lessons or these rules, right, are in this book and your thoughts on them? So some of his lessons, um, he, break, he breaks this book up into um, like almost like a series of lectures that he could be giving to an organizer. And it's really important to say that this book is addressed to um, an organizer going into, um, going into a community that they're probably not from. Um, which is like one of the primary critiques and one of my primary problems with the book now, like, you know, seven years after having read the book. Um, but it's, it talks about like um, communication and communication style. Um, communication being like, you um, have to be willing to have your mind changed. You cannot go in with like political dogma or rigid political, rigid political beliefs. Um, you have to go in to whatever conversation you're about to have, listening to somebody's experience and accepting that your political tactics um, should be relative to what people want and what work they can do. So 
so like this idea of like political relativism is like really big and never speaking to people in like sort of a dogmatic way. Um, he also talks about um, this idea of means and ends, which is you cannot um, outright say ever that some mean is not, does not justify the end. So this idea of like embracing, for example, nonviolence is relative to what the history of the place is. So he he basically goes into detail about how like Gandhi is praised often for like nonviolence, but when you actually push further on um, what Gandhi supported and did not support, he actually does not rule out violence had the circumstances, if the circumstances were different. Um, and he basically emphasizes the point that the question about this, this common question of does the, do the means justify the ends should actually be, do these particular means justify a particular end? Um, so in some contexts, it might make sense to like embrace looting. In some, sen in some contexts, it might make sense, a lot more sense to like not touch that. It depends on like who you are trying to change and what the history is of violent repression and the history of organizing tactics in that location. Um, he talks about ego a lot, um, and he says that there is a difference between a political ego and egotism. Um, and he actually, this is the, this is a really interesting thing that like kind of sits weirdly with me now, um, seven years later, especially in this like 2020 moment of mass movement organizing. And it's interesting because he's not talking about mass movement organizing. He's talking about mass organizing. So creating an organization and bringing people in to an organization, which is, a, I think, an important distinction from what we've seen this summer, which is like a broad campaign, for example, like defund CPD, that anyone is welcome to adopt and take in without necessarily being in an organization and paying dues. Um, so... In this book, he talks about the role of like community members and the role of the organizer in the community. And he says that actually the ego of the organizer is really important because it needs to be infectious. Like he, it needs to be an ego that other people feel like they can be drawn to and inspired by. Um, and this is something now I'm thinking about a lot, having reread this book this week, <laughs> um, is, you know, how do we... Uh, not idolize an organizer and this this book is really like talking about it's really speaking to this old dynamic of like a singular organizer who comes in and organizes a community um and that, that so there's that yeah and that makes me think about like the the, the lack of a, a gender analysis in the book as well and i think that you know oh my right God. and i yeah and i'm, I'm thinking about mm -hmm. the 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 very real harms that that often go hand in hand with charismatic leadership, right? And that was never sort of addressed uh, in, in, in past organizing spaces, right? And we're now, just now starting to address like accountability and like transformative justice, restorative justice and things like that. So that really brings up a lot for me there. Yes. So in this whole book, and I, I want to disclaim, like, I, to Paige's point about, like, this is talked about all the time, but I haven't read it. I don't think you need to read this book. Like, <laughs> I think if you're interested you're in it, if you're interested in organizing, <laughs> if you're interested in organizing history, it's really interesting to see the tactics listed out. So if you're going to pick it up, I think the chapter to look at is, like, the tactics chapter, page, like, 127 through, like, 170. Um, which is basically about this idea of like 
you need to use tactics that the people involved are going to enjoy. He talks about like, you need to actually want to do, you need, you need something that a community will actually want to do together um, because otherwise they cannot sustain. Um, he, ta- he uses a very like, the organizer is always a he in this book. So like full disclaimer that if this language is gonna be like, oh, I don't wanna read an old white man, basically prescribing a lot of the organizing relationships that we now in 2020 are trying to untangle and unlearn and create accountability for like, this is the, leg- this is the legacy of like what we're trying to untangle ourselves from. I think to effectively do that, we have to know the history though. Um, so I, will, I would love to read a couple of the tactics, just because if you're not going to read it, you should just know what he says. Um, and also a disclaimer that he talks about things very much in the language of like the enemy um, and this idea of like, rather than getting into sort of Marxist, like bourgeois proletariat, he's like haves and have nots and then have a littles and doesn't, don't want to lose it. And I think that is really helpful because like you're where you, you, you know, you disclude, you, uh, Disclude, is that a word? You uh, don't include a lot of people when you say like bourgeois and proletariat, a lot of people will tune you out. Like, so I do appreciate that this is not like a hyper academic text. Um, so power is not only what you have, but what the enemy thinks you have. I remember reading that and being like, true. <laughs> the second rule is never go outside the experience of your people. When an action or tactic is outside of uh, the experience of the people, the result is confusion, fear, and retreat. It also means a collapse of communication, as we have noted. And I thought that was really helpful when I was 20 years old and still today. Um, wherever possible, go outside the experience of the enemy because you want to confu- cause them confusion, fear, and retreat. The fourth rule is make the enemy live up up to their own book of rules. Um, the the, The fifth rule is ridicule is man's most potent weapon. The sixth rule is a good tactic is one that your people enjoy. And the seventh rule is a tactic that drags on too long becomes a drag. So... Um, so thinking about this idea of like what is reasonable or like what is strategic to boycott. You don't want to ask people to boycott bread and milk and essentials. Um, but boycotting grapes is like potentially could be considered a luxury item that um, liberals, he, he says, um, or like upper middle class people in solidarity won't mind giving up. Um, so there, he keeps going and going. But um, oh, the one other tactic I'll mention is the ninth rule is the threat is usually more terrifying than the thing itself the threat of your tactic. So he describes this like O'Hare sit-in that um, he worked on planning of, you know, the people he was organizing with didn't have money, but there were a lot of bodies. And so he was like, how can we creatively like show up to O'Hare and clog the bathrooms? Like we're all gonna go in and like we pay a quarter to go to the bathroom. It's one of the busiest airports in the country. We're just gonna take up all the bathrooms and like jam the entire place. Um, and when they caught wind of that, um, O'Hare like agreed to some of the demands. I, I don't remember the entire example, but basically as soon as word of a, of a threat gets, of a tactic gets out, that can be just as effective as the thing itself. Um, something that he says often is, uh, he gives examples of organizing for housing rights and he gives examples around like employment. Um, and I think that's mostly because of like 
his experience, right? But he does talk about when he says like, what are the resources that the have nots have? Which first of all, like even that language of like, I see what you were trying to do there is like make this as like simplistic as possible, but that's, you're talking about have nots with regards to money, not about other things. So, but he says like, uh, when you do assess like the resources of the have nots where you are, a lot of bodies and no money. And so it's like what what we have really learned this year, but I think just generally in our work is uh, an actual resource assessment of what a community has and is able to give each other, especially as we're all together learning so much about mutual aid this year, is that everybody actually does have things, skills to contribute and roles to play outside of this idea of like a mass of bodies. And so if I were to say like, what is my big critique of this book now, or rather like how have we evolved in the organizing space since Alinsky was once heralded as like the top organizer or whatever, is that we are a lot better at actually seeing people as uniquely contributing to an ecosystem rather than considering masses of people as just literally bodies to shuffle around, to stage. I mean, there's something that's very theatrical about the way he talks about organizing tactics. He talks about taking thousands of people into city hall. He talks about um, people who have slumlords showing up into the white north side neighborhood where that slumlord like lives and being outside of the neighbor's homes and being like, did you know your neighbor is a slumlord? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking at these list of rules and a lot of them I, I agree with and seem to apply to organizing that I've been a part of that feels really, really successful. But I'm also very aware that there's something about a lot of the campaigns that I've been a part of, like Buy Anita, No Cop Academy, We Charge Genocide, that I feel like Alinsky would have, if he had seen the proposal on paper of what we ended up doing, would have been like, absolutely not. And I'm trying to understand Wait, why, like, why do you think he would have said that? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Like, where where is that coming from? And my, so I want I, I want to tell you what I, my hunch is and see what yeah what you think. One is that several of these campaigns were not place based. The, the the how community is defined, um, and maybe that's just changed since the 1970s because of like the internet. But anyway, so yeah, place based. There's another around. Um, I, I, I'm, it seems like he was very pragmatic in ways that, and, and opposed to dogma in ways that make me think he, I don't know how he, he would have understood abolitionist organizing, which has a matrix that it, uh, 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 it uses to make demands to, um, and that the how we organize is as important as what we organize is as important as what we organize for, um, and and the, and and that we refuse to make concessions. Um, there is no ten percent that we're willing to take on No Cop Academy. It's just No Cop Academy, right? There wasn't even anything we were asking for in Recharge Genocide. We were just being like, "You're not gonna act like this is you. You didn't do this." And that it didn't matter, that Damo's life mattered, and we're just going to make it matter to you whether you want to or not, right? That you, that the, the goal, it seems like, I think, something about the ways that he understood demands as, like, maybe smart goals is, like, the words we use now, um, and that's just not how I've organized. Like, they're not... They're not quote unquote smart goals. Um, even if Bionita was very specific and time bound and measurable, we either win or you lose, but it's we still would have done it even if we knew we were going to lose, as we did for like the No Cop Academy campaign, where we knew we wouldn't win that, but it mattered that we fight. And it mattered that we fight, and that was like an interesting place-based 
anyways, now I'm rambling. But yeah, so those are some of the things that I'm like, what is it that I feel so out of sync with? And those are some of my hunches. So this is so interesting to me because I feel like I never really get to talk about this. Alinsky, I think, is applying a very like almost electoral style of organizing to social issue organizing. Um, or rather, part of me wonders if actually electoral politics learned and adopted a lot of um, Alinsky style organizing. But this this older notion of like, which I think we still see in labor um, labor based organizing and like, yeah, labor unions is this idea that you are actually getting people. I think maybe the housing example is a really good one because it is very place-based organizing and it's asking people to like join a tenant union. And so he's talking about literally building, and this is the big difference between the campaigns that you mentioned, is those campaigns are, um, those campaigns are bigger than any one organization. Um, whereas what he is talking about is like, how do you create an organization that is place-based, that is fighting for sets of demands, that is willing to then negotiate with whoever's in power to get something? And I think it is just a different style of org. It's just like a different, um, not even just a different style, it's just like a different realm of organizing almost. I think what he would appreciate about all the campaigns you mentioned is the tactics or the techniques were all like, in all of those campaigns, were all like very unique in trying to hit people where it hurt, hit people in power where it hurt. So this idea of like um, around fire Dante Servin showing up to the police board meeting every month for many months. Um, and those are like with people wearing yellow shirts. And I think they're, they're actually tactical things and also like tactics people enjoy, um, things like that. I think, I think he would have appreciated that. I agree that he probably would not be a huge, he wouldn't find abolition as a like achievable thing because he he centers so much like you have to start from where you are not from start from where you what you want which I think is actually very different than um the way we've been doing defund like and and just generally in Chicago we are like no we are running out of time to be talking about what we have and what we can do we need to actually we're going to start where we want and you can come meet us um and so yeah I don't know but also I think like he wrote this like right before he passed. And, and so part of me is like 2020 is so different from the late sixties. Um, something I really like that he says is like, he acknowledges the emerging tension of like the 1968 democratic convention. He had like a lot of young organizers who were distraught at the way that like after participating, um, in electoral politics in any way, getting votes out and just seeing the complete dismissal of, of what, what the masses actually wanted. He was like, a lot of young people are asking me, like, you still want us to participate in this system and like negotiate with those in power? Um, and he doesn't fully, he's, he still says yes, because he says like, what else are you going to do? You're going to lose a lot of people, but it doesn't sound like a resolved question. Like, I think he almost surfaces this idea of like, I don't know, actually, like, <laughs> this is, it was, a tr it was devastating, it was traumatic, and then he died. And so, um, wow. so I don't know, part of me thinks that, like, the 1968 convention in Chicago was, like, the beginning of the, maybe end, of <laughs> Walensky-style organizing. Mm. Mm. That's, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm looking at, 
Yeah, a lot of what you said is making me think back at the No Cop Academy campaign because so many of uh, the the rules apply within the No Cop Academy campaign, but then at the same time clash with each other. Um, Like, especially number 12, the price of a successful attack is a constructive alternative, right? And it's like this this idea that, like, you have to have a solution or else you're not going to have... you're not going to have a successful campaign, right? And that, what does that look like when we're not, we weren't doing, pl- uh, you know, literal place-based organizing with No Cop Academy, right? We were doing coalition-based, you know, intergenerational, multiracial, um, um, black youth-led organizing, and uh, we didn't. We people wanted answers. People wanted to hear. Well, what are you going to put instead? Like, how many, how many resources are you going to put? Where are you going to put them in, in West Garfield Park? And we were like, that's not for us to decide. That's that's you know that that's the beauty of uh of black led sorry my cat is my cat is all over me that is the beauty of black led youth led organizing is that they they decide and they they determine what is best for the communities that they're that they're live that they're living in and that, that they're directly impacted by the oppressions of and so yeah i just it's making me think a lot about how um there's 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 overlap in what we're seeing now in organizing but then there's so much clashing with like but that's like you said this isn't the 1960s anymore this is 2020 right well i think like there's a there is a difference in possibility for tactics and making a decision about what is the grounding is it place-based because we have access to reach a lot of people and get a lot of support um across the city um, and outside of the city when we have uh, campaigns that are not place-based. I do think, though, there is still something to be said for like the value or the strategic choice to have a very place-based um, campaign. Like, um, just thinking about us getting closer to an eviction crisis which I mean, in some ways we're already experiencing, but like South Shore, for example, is gonna be like ground zero for, um, for an eviction crisis in Chicago and in the country. And I think that there is a lot of people power in the idea of like, how do we make sure that community leaders or tenants are the basis and the like, the substance of of fighting for their own like anti-eviction needs and also for their like basic human rights um, versus if like we as organizers are doing a a giant anti-eviction campaign that like, you know, is trying to hit hit the people in power where it hurts in our communication tactics. Um, But this is something I think about a lot with like defund. Defund is not a place-based campaign. I mean, it is and that it's like about Chicago, but um, when you, there's always this constant tension or work to reconcile the fact that a lot of people with lived experience are really afraid of the idea of defunding 75%. And so if this were to be a place, like, I, and I think there is, it matters that defund CPD is not place-based because I think if we were to start with a neighborhood about how police are in their neighborhood, we would be getting into these, like, um, these like, okay, well, what can we actually literally make the cops do and not do in our neighborhood? That's not going to necessarily structurally change the game, right? So in a thing like defund, yes, it needs to be a lot bigger than one neighborhood. In a thing like housing and concrete, like 
concrete like um, life changes in the next couple of months, I think that it makes sense for that those fights to be like really grounded in the people in a neighborhood. Um, and I'm sure there are better examples that we like actually have in our recent history. I'm thinking like even like Asada's daughters with like Washington Park and the University of Chicago, like it is important that that is based in Washington Park, right? So I don't know. I think Alinsky is just talking about something different than our mass movement work. That's where my brain was going is I, I think that Alinsky was describing the importance of organizations. And so I guess that my disclaimer, like something that folks should know is like, I believe in organizations. Um, I think 2020 was the year where it, where I was like, let's not worry about that. Like that's, that is not the, the priority of like what needs to be grown right now. Um, but there is in amongst the communities, the community that I organize within like big picture, not everyone agrees with me in organization, right? Um, as opposed to something less structured. Um, and there are dangers to building. I think there are many dangers to building organization because they can become dogmatic in their own and about, and this is how, I think one of the critiques of Alinsky is this sort of professionalization of organizing that leads to just new bureaucracies um, that aren't actually about the, the 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 importance of organizing, which is people taking control of the conditions that determine their lives, right? Um, as opposed to keeping an organization funded and going, you know. So, anyways, I'm rambling, and 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 there's organizations, there's organizing, community organizing, and then there's movements. And I think no cop, we keep mentioning it, but it sits at this interesting crux because it is talked about in terms of being a movement, and I, this was something we talked about with young people a few times, is like actually it's a campaign and that's different, but it's a part of this movement that gets called the movement for black lives, but I think right now is sort of understood as like the defund movement. It's an invest-divest campaign, right? But And part of, it's not a coincidence that two of the main, that, that no cop was, was was so successful because it was centered around young people. And it was centered around young people, some of which did not belong to an organization, and to this day do not. And their, their political home is no cop, right? And that's fine and fabulous, and I don't think Alinsky would, would fuck with that. But also, it, a, a lot of the, especially initial oomph of the campaign was made by young people that were a part of Asada's Daughters and BP and C, two place-based organizations. And I think there's this relationship that we don't talk about enough about in order to have strong movements, you have to have strong community organizing, which usually means you need strong place-based neighborhood organizations to create these complex webs that, that what I don't see in Alinsky suggesting also make room for the unorganized, right? Um, and that, and there's this 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 sort of dialectical thing that's happening all the time. Um, where, yeah, and, and I lost. I had a point, and I didn't nail no, it. No, it was curious. that was actually so well said. It's like in this <laughs> in this map of you have campaigns, you have a bigger movement for an actual successful campaign. There needs to be a political home. Um, Monica was just mentioning like there needs to be political homes that like people from a campaign can like be absorbed into. So we've talked a lot about the the, the pieces we can pull from Alinsky's Rules for Radicals and, and the ways that the style of organizing um, also butts heads with our current model of like mass movement building uh, and, and grassroots organizing in Chicago. So I'm curious how this book has influenced the ways that you personally organize or, or aspire to organize in the communities that you're part of. So this book, despite all the tensions, um, has still, I think, deeply influenced my um, 
my practice of still encouraging participation in civic institutions, specifically like voting and democracy. Um, And he says that, I don't know if I have the direct quote like at the ready, but he says that the reason why we still participate in democracy is right now it is the best means to achieve the values of equality, freedom, um, like resources for people. Um, he just talks a lot about how like, you know, the val- it always comes back to these values that are different depending on what co- community you're in, but um, democracy is the system that we can work on. Um, and he also talks about how it is like not really a true democracy, but um, to, to completely give up on it is like actually going to just further entrench uh, the power structures of it not being a democracy. So I think about this tension a lot and how I, my practice is like in that tension where one of my favorite things to, to do with young people who I've like know over a course of at least two years and then continue to know them is take a lot of people to vote for the first time. And um, there's always a conversation beforehand of, do you want to vote? Why or why not? many times we have a conversation and they're like, I don't want to vote. And it's like, okay, well, would you be down to have a conversation with me about why you don't want to vote? And not in like a, let me try to convince you, but in a genuine, like, let's do, let's like have a conversation. I really want to hear what you're like, at least to get stronger at like articulating why that system is not for them and um, how they feel about it. And oftentimes by the next election, they end up voting, but it's like that in itself that like, it's like, okay, if you're going to choose to not participate, like let it be a civic participation in your decision to not participate. And I might disagree with it, but like, I want them to, I want whoever I'm working with to feel that. Let's talk about 2020 and how you've thought about these ideas. And like you mentioned at the beginning, uh, you know, you've been doing a lot of like mutual aid and and you're a part of the defund campaign and all these things. So like how, um, I'm curious if you could just connect the the dots between what you've taken away from this book to to how it applies to 2020 um, from your own experience. Then also just, yeah, if more people picked up this book, knowing some of the, the tension of it, what do you think might happen if more people read it? So this year, I was a trainer at the defund campaign. And I agree with you that Alinsky would probably be like, this is in place based and 75% is not reasonable. Like he would, he's, he's like a political strategist in electoral sense. Um, and so I think, and it was also some of the first work that I did that was not in like a direct conflict to the university. Um, though through my work with the defund campaign, I became like more vocal about my opposition to the crime lab. Um, and so to me, that still felt like a, okay, still like thinking about the institutions that I'm calling out. Um, I also think that in a lot of the mutual aid work, so specifically I developed a, with like a few other people at 61st and Blackstone, I developed a food mutual aid program called Market Box where we funded like 20 local farms to source and pack um, fresh food bags of eggs, bread, produce, Um, and delivered to 200 households each week for the past 26 weeks. Like today is the last day of it. And in that, thank you. Thank you for the time. In that, (laughs) 
um, we made sure to include like the Southside Weekly. We were like, okay, it can't just be food. Like how do we politicize every mutual aid act and how do we make sure that it is always framed as like a direct action um, and not necessarily like around just defund, right? Like what Marketbox wasn't tied explicitly to defund in any way, but it was specifically about this idea of like, our institutions are failing us. And so we have to find ways to better take care of each other and go beyond the, the norms of what it means to collaborate. So the Invisible Institute was a part of market box and i think a lot of funders from traditional organization standpoint are like why is a journalism organization doing food well our thought is there's a weekly phone bank and there's distribution of the south side weekly in the bags and so this is a critical information network that we as journalists need to be thinking outside the box outside of the rules of like well don't touch food because you're not a food organization um and so i was really inspired this year by the lack of like proprietariness and the, the idea of like collaboration as like genuinely like you put the work first I'm gonna promote I don't work for City Bureau but I'm gonna I'm gonna tell everyone I know about their COVID resource finder there's something about this year that I feel like made us think about our neighbors and our community in even deeper ways than we had um, that feels relevant to Alinsky for me. So even as you were talking, like, yeah, I don't know where the line ends and Alinsky leaves and like your other theories come in, but that sort of like, uh, this is about people. Yes, we want to win things and change the way things are done and transform power, but also it's about people and like our ability to love and support each other. And what does that actually mean? Right. And I think it's, it's about before we can even win a campaign, we need to make sure that our people can survive. You know, like we need, we, if, if we're not all surviving and, and, and thriving, in fact, then we can't, we can't organize together. We can't uh, have a successful campaign if we're not eating and, you know, have all of the basic necessities that we need to survive. Um, so thank you so much, Myra, for, for doing the work that you do, for making sure that mutual aid isn't uh, depoliticized, right? Because mutual aid is so political. And I feel like the more we're talking about it this year, the more it's becoming mainstream and therefore the, 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 the politics are pulling away from that. And, we, and it's so important for us to make sure that we know that mutual aid is deeply, deeply anarchist in a, in a, in a lot of ways. And so I, I, I wanna, I'm, I'm glad mm-hmm. that you're bringing that mm-hmm. into the space and into your organizing work. So thank you so much. Um, well, we're near the end of our show, and I think that the takeaway is that if you're listening, you don't necessarily need to read this book for an analysis of an organizing strategy. <laughs> um, but, you know, for Chicago history's sake, you should read the book. So we ask every guest to close us out with their favorite passage from the book. Uh, so, Myra, can you read, uh, read to us what moved you in this book? Um, yeah. And just like everything else in this conversation... I want to say that this sits with me in like as a tension point, but I think about it all the time. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And also, should I change the pronoun or is, I'll say it how Alinsky says, he says him all the time. And I'm like, I don't even work with that many like people who go by he, him. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, who are we talking about here? Also, switch it up. Okay. Yeah. Use, um, use 1971. Some, use some she, we'll use some they. Yeah. Switch it up. <laughs> all right. All right, I'm yeah. going to switch out him for they. What I am saying is that the organizer must be able to split themselves into two parts. 
one part in the arena of action where they polarize the issue to 100 to nothing and helps to lead forces into conflict, while the other part knows that when the time comes for negotiations, that it is really, that it really is only a 10% different difference, and yet both parts have to live comfortably with each other. Only a well-organized person can split and yet stay together, but this is what the organizer must do. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Lit Review, a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about books to help grow our movement. We are your co-hosts, Monica Trinidad and Paige May, two Chicago-based abolitionist organizers. We'll be back next week with another episode next Sunday, same time, same place. Want to learn about a specific book? Email us your suggestions at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. And if you like this episode, Give it a shout out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at LitReviewShy. Financial support for the production of this podcast is thanks to our amazing Patreon subscribers. Learn more about becoming a patron at patreon.com slash thelitreview. Keep reading.